Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Acris Exchange Full and Frank podcast with me, Michael Wilson, and a good friend of mine, David Buick. David, how are you? Very well, Michael. Greetings to you. Been looking forward to this enormously. Very, very pleased to say we're joined by Quentin Letts. Now, just just make sure I've got everything that you do here. Parliamentary observer, political sketch writer, journalist, author, theatre critic. So there you are. You're, you're, you're at school. Um, journalistic ambitions to start with? I mean, what, what did you imagine you were going to do? Uh, well, I thought I would probably do this because from about the age of 11, I wanted to do it. My father was pressing me to become a schoolmaster. He was a schoolmaster. And I realised that... I would prefer to be a journal rather than being a schoolmaster. The trouble being about being a schoolmaster wasn't putting putting up with the children. They were fine. It's putting up with the parents. <laughs> I couldn't have been able to do that. <laughs> so from the age of about 11, yeah, 10 or 11, I wanted to be a hack. So, so what was, was, now forgive me, Fleet Street was probably just tailing off as a, as a geographical No, location. I just got the end of it. Uh, uh, um, uh, 1986 I started and therefore was mm. I went to work in the old Daily Telegraph building, which is a magnificent slightly fascist looking edifice on Fleet Street and mm. then also I did, some, yes, of course it was. I did some shifts in the evening standard which was in the back of Bianca, the uh, express building and it was one of those fantastic old buildings which had still the chutes where you the, these air suction tubes where you would send your copy mm. down to the printer by rolling it up in a tube and sending it uh, shooting down and um, it was good to catch the end of that. By that stage had, had, had Murdoch actually had Murdoch actually moved his titles to to Wapping by that I can't time. remember the exact date of, of Murdoch happening but uh I uh, was was there on the telegraph and we could still when you walked into the telegraph building you could still see through to the back where all the printing was happening and the you could he- hear the vibration of the presses starting to churn in the afternoon it was very exciting you got a real sense of it being an industry as in uh mm. a business an, an enterprise that operated with boats in oily oily overalls and with machines and that gave it i think that gave journalism a slightly different flavor and made it a bit less snooty than it's become perhaps you very quickly established yourself i mean and swept aside all before you so many absolutely quality sketch writers from andrew alexander to frank johnson uh you know to patrick kidd and you are the doyen how easy has it been to establish yourself in that framework is it is it very difficult to break into does it matter whether you're accepted with what you say or do you just need a really supportive editor and you plow your own furrow uh, david i don't think i've swept anyone aside i hope not and certainly not the likes of frank uh, johnson who was a friend no, i meant that, that as a compliment i meant that as a compliment i know but um <laughs> uh, each sketcher is different and styles vary and you know you go back to bernard levin was arguably the father of modern sketching, even though Dickens did a bit in his time. Um, does one need a, su- a supportive editor? Yes, <laughs> one does. The Telegraph had a sketch writer called Simon Heffer, it's still well known, and Heffer went off on a sabbatical, went off to follow some cricket in uh, the Southern Hemisphere. And while he was away, I was given a chance to have a bash. And while I was doing it, Mrs. Thatcher was toppled. And Mrs. Thatcher, of course, was Simon Heffer's great pinup, and I don't think Heffer's ever quite forgiven me for not having saved her. Um, uh, but 
one does need a supportive editor and john major became prime minister on his second or third day as prime minister i called him dreary i said this dreary prime minister and number 10 hit the roof and uh, max called me in and said you can't call the prime minister dreary and i said well he is max and max said i know he is but you should have called him unexciting and actually there was a nice distinction there which was probably fair because if you call someone unexciting it is factual it has not excited people but dreary slightly loaded term but i got sacked as sketch writer soon after that and so my max wasn't that cross for me he sent me off to america instead so um it wasn't too bad but i i, I got a, a an inkling there that there is political pressure brought to bear on editing. What, what, what about somebody, somebody like John Burko? I mean, you never, you never, you were relentless in your in your pursuit of him, weren't you? When he was yes, and I think e even did, the did, 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 weakest editor would have learned that because it's so powerfully true. <laughs> um, so I don't think there would have been any any difficulty there. But the previous speaker, uh, Michael Martin, cut up quite rough and tried to take away my pass, my parliamentary pass, and the Daily Mail stood by me very well and it ended up with first of all there was demand that paul dacre should go and present himself to the sergeant at arms and explain himself about my atrocious sketches and it ended up with the managing editor of the daily mail taking the sergeant at arms out to lunch at the garrick which was somehow very, very english do you find there's a lot of a lot of animosity from from people whom you are not complimentary about because I, I don't know now i mean of course it's been closed down and we'll, we'll come on to that in in effect but th there seems to be a lack of a sense of humor amongst politicians at, at the moment do, do, do you feel that do, i mean you're not exactly close to them because you can't be but i mean do you, do you get a lot of animosity i don't think they were ever particularly thrilled about being mocked i don't think they become worse necessarily some of them have maybe latched on to the idea of victimhood and they play the thing so that sometimes if you um you take the mickey out of an mp who happens to be female then you get bored and misogynist well, that never used to happen or if you take the mickey out of someone who's a member of a minority you get suddenly called you know you're you're against that minority but i mean that's that just falls on the whole and uh, what we are is sketch writers is where verbal cartoonists nobody ever complains yeah. about the cartoonists in a newspaper but they complain about mm -hmm. sketch writers hey well was betty boothroyd easy to deal with quentin or not betty was very easy to deal with and occasionally um one would telephone her office just to check something but occasionally uh, one would telephone betty and she didn't employ a, employ a press officer and sometimes it would be her, her secretary as in the person who stands next to her in the chamber would answer the telephone and it was never there was never any fuss whereas as soon as michael martin came in he employed a press officer uh, soon after he came in and then burko was very aggressive against the press and was, was was very defensive the more defensive you are as a speaker or as a cabinet minister i think the more likely you are to be attacked can we can, can we move to your to, to your your theater criticism sadly of course theaters most theaters are, are dark now aren't they but again how did how did you manage to keep that going as well because that that's a very difficult i would I, I don't know i've never done it myself i would imagine it's a very difficult thing to do you've got to write something almost immediately in darkness and all the rest of it and then get it get it to your publisher as quickly as possible that's quite a strain i would have thought on top of everything but you clearly yeah, theater critics it. always take a lot of us take notes Charlie Spencer on the Telegraph used to take copious notes and then you come out of the theatre and look at your notebook and you can't read a thing because you've been writing over <laughs> your script in the dark. And Sheridan Morley, I think, used to have a little uh, a pen which had a little torch on it. 
terribly annoying for the people who were sitting near him because it radiated a glow and that made it difficult, more difficult to see what was on the stage. Being a theatre critic sits quite well with sketch writing in a way because they're both forms of dramatic criticism. Um, being a theatre critic on a daily paper is sometimes uh, a little bit of a, a press because you have to rush out, you have to waddle out, and as soon as the curtain is, looks like it's starting to fall, you see these figures crouching, running for the exits, and that's the daily critics. And now on a Sunday, which is easier because you don't have to file immediately. The Daily Mail, being a theatre theater critic on the mail, was they, they regarded theatre as an act of news, which is quite, quite right. Theatre, first night, so sort of newsy. And sometimes finding the copy was a bit of a sweat. Tell me of all the wonderful theatres that you must have seen over the last 30-odd years or so, one or two actors and actresses surely stand up. What's the best play you've ever seen? Oh, good heavens. I don't Horrible know. Question. Tell Horrible what, question. What really, I'll tell you what really sticks in the mind is there was a, a miracle play, a mystery play, you know, one of those passion plays that was played in the ruins of Coventry Cathedral, the old Coventry Cathedral that was bombed. And that was a tremendously moving event played. It was performed by mainly by amateurs, people of Coventry playing these parts. And that was for me, as, as the sun was going down, that was a particularly memorable event. Best actor, uh, I'd say probably David Suchet. Uh, Suchet on stage is electrifying. Mind you, Kenneth Branagh's pretty good too. And it's just, you can sense immediately when you're in the presence of a real actor. I used to do a bit of acting myself at Trinity Dublin when I was a, an undergraduate. And we had, we're pretty good act, we're pretty good players. We used to do one uh, a week. But there were one or two of the people I acted with went on to do it professionally. And they were, it was just, they were in a completely different league. When you played opposite them, you sensed a, a, a totally different approach and the ability to to radiate their their character to the audience, and I didn't have that. I wasn't I wasn't any good. But there's one or two people have that real gift. I mean, the, I think some things have changed. I mean, not that this is particularly interesting, but the, I remember the very first theatre I saw, and what took me to it. Don't laugh, was that the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford in 1959 to see the worst ever King Lear with Charlie Lawton, with Elsa Lanchester, and then Lawrence Naismith with Gloucester. We had unbelievable, we had, uh, Reagan was played by Edith Evans, gone on by Angela Badley, and then Judy Dench was an 18 year old Ophelia, whatever it was. I mean, it was a stunning pr production, apart from Charles Lawton, who was dreadful. But I must say it did suck me into the, the um, whole theatre thing. Do you think Shakespeare's important anymore, uh, Quentin, or do you think really it's it's been sidelined apart from in schools? Of course it's important, fantastically important, because it mines into human character. Lady Macbeth is everything you need to know about politics and maybe the powers behind politics. So I think it completely matters. Shakespeare's fantastically good on the human character. Uh, some of the plots uh, may be a, a bit tricky um, to follow, certainly in the first scene, always. I never understand the language in the first scene. Um, talking of Lear, the best Lear I saw, I don't really like King Lear as a play. I can never I can never accept the opening premise. But the best Lear was Eric Jacobi, because when it came to the storm scene, which they normally do with tremendous clattering of wind machines and the hurricanes and all that, instead they did it almost completely silently. And Jacobi 
whispered those lines uh, in the storm scene on on the on the pool, yeah. the storm cast. I saw that at Richmond. And I saw that at Richmond. Yeah. The brilliance of Wonderful. that was that it showed you that the real storm, the real tempest, is in Lear's mind, and that to me was it was the first time I'd ever thought about it like that. And it was the, the brilliant, and it was an intimate. It was in the Donmar warehouse, very intimate setting. You were close enough to be able to hear the whisper. The, the, I, I, th I think the I think the power of it. I'm, I don't want to name drop too much, but one, for all sorts of circumstances, I don't really know why this was. Alan, Sir Alan Aitborn used to help me with my English homework. That's not that, <laughs> is it? Anyway, that was because I was I, I was that that just thought I'd drop that in. But the thing is that when we used to talk about when we were doing when I was doing Shakespeare, I used to say to him, "What does this mean?" And he said, "That's the whole point. It's all about ambiguity, and it's right, isn't it? I mean that that's that's one of the things that makes it very difficult. But you can you can add these kind of fantastic interpretations to, to what he wrote um just just through ambiguity because it, it's a bit like stories in the bible you know you, you you don't get a black and white picture you get ambiguity that's what life's about that's what that's, yes, that's what shakespeare you, you, you yes, can yes, serve yes, up yes. in so many different ways like chicken <laughs> you know, yeah. chicken can take all sorts of treatments <laughs> and i love the analogy <laughs> i mean you know shakespeare can take a lot of punishments a lot of treatment as can greek tragedy and you can do greek tragedy you can do a Medea and set that in, you know, in, in Bush's White House or something like that. It still works really well. Don't, don't you find that as a nation, though, we've been fairly supine during the whole of this pandemic? I read now I, I know it was a I know it was a bit of a it was it was a bit of a conceit, if I can put it like that. But it was a very good article. I think it was in The Spectator and it was about comparing the population of the UK to the population of North Korea and saying, actually, the, the North Koreans <laughs> at least had a certain amount of certainty about their lifespan and what they were going to do and and they they, they and, and and they took all this stuff being thrown at them because they realized it was for the common good whereas in this country people have just you, you're right they, they 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 feel sorry for themselves but they're also so supine don't, don't you feel that there's a, and we, we we deserve to be bossed about because we we, we are not when yeah, so it's slightly it's a pathetic attitude that uh i i mean i hate being told that i'm a member of a team and we're all in this together and that really makes me grind my teeth <laughs> and everyone was saying oh you've got to do this to protect the weakest which is a noble enough approach but actually a lot of the weakest are perfectly capable of looking after themselves do do you do you feel that you know it, it, it's about time the house of commons got back to being crowded again. I mean, I know there's the pandemic and all that kind of stuff, but it strikes me that the mechanism of that house, and I don't know it well because I'm not a political reporter, but I observe it from outside. I like the ebb and flow. I think it's important that we see our politicians smiting each other verbally. I think that's absolutely fine. Do you feel as though it's about time that that got back uh, to Very much again? so. Uh, I mean, just going out in a couple of weeks time from when we're talking. So let's hope that there's, there's, there are signs of spring growth so to speak in the parliamentary garden because it's really essential but uh it's essential it's essential for two reasons it's essential for the people to see that their politicians can be criticized other you know that's still very important but it's also very important for the ministers themselves to come under sharp scrutiny because it makes those ministers better it means that they go in better prepared and it means that they actually ask their officials to explain policy and that way you get better policy. Quite often officials are drawing up policy that's terrible and ministers say, no, you can't do that for goodness sake because I'll get slaughtered in the House of Commons about it. So it's essential 
have that. But also to have the sheer hurly-burly of the crowded commons means that you get heckling. We've had no heckling for a year. Hopeless. And no, to have no. heckling just brings down the prime minister or a um, particularly a health secretary. My goodness, he needs a bit of heckling. Uh, and to, to have, a, have them sort of pricked, um, uh, punctured on the spot is terribly good for the whole body politic. I mean, one of the things is that an observer like Michael, I mean, I think, of, I think we don't have the characters and the parliamentarians that I felt we had 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, that's, you can say, well, everybody says that when they go through their own period. But it just strikes me that, um, you know, there's nobody that I really, gosh, I really want to sit down and listen to him. I mean, Michael Foote, even though he is not of my political persuasion, I used to think was fantastic in the House of Commons. And I mean, I remember Peter O'Bourne telling me that Gordon Brown, when he came into the House of Commons in 1985, was electric when he was on his feet. And it was only when he became Chancellor that he changed. Who's really impressed you, Quentin, that, you know, as a parliamentarian over the last 25 years or so, that you really felt they were giving them their best and they were really worth listening to? Well, actually, David, I'm much less pessimistic than you are. And I think there's an element in, in your question of the boring old fart <laughs> saying that, um, you know, <laughs> oh, things are, things are better in the old days. The things were not better in 1997 when Blair came in. That was a terrible because it was too one-sided. And a lot of the people who got into Parliament in 97 had no real expectation of becoming an MP. Suddenly they found themselves in the House of Commons and they didn't know how to do it. Um, parliaments are generally better when things are level between the parties, as they were actually from 2010 to 2019, uh, because it was very balanced and made it, much more, made it much better cricket, um, much better to watch. And there are one or two at the moment. There's a man called Sir Charles Walker, who's at the moment uh, having a rather strange protest with a pint of milk he's trying to complain about rules quite rightly but it's rather sort of surreal protest he's doing um you've got on the labor bench you've got hillary ben who actually is right at the moment he's rather downy depressed about brexit hillary made a, about five six years ago made a tremendous speech off the top of his head attacking labor's position on i think it was on syria i, I may have the details wrong but he made a tremendous late at night speech yeah rolled out of it and uh, it's changed parliamentary opinion and then if you think back a little bit but not too far back further George Galloway um, with his views so what doesn't matter and there is a parliamentary observer and Galloway was a, um, a snorter in I mean that in terms of his rhetoric uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in in the House of Commons <laughs> my goodness you got a sense of the souk when he spoke the Middle Eastern souk and he was explaining views that were being suppressed by the establishment. Not, not suppressed so much, but just ignored and, and not being talked about. Galloway was able, not necessarily to change, change opinion, but to show the, the establishment the other view and therefore maybe make the establishment a little bit more balanced. The best parliamentarians tend to be those who are the least wedded to party. And also, they tend sometimes to be um, the ones with no ambition. And to be a backbencher, to me, should be sufficient. And therefore, you've got someone like Tam Diel, who wasn't actually a great orator, was terribly good at asking questions because he was so short. Brevity was tremendous. And Tam Diel would sometimes stand up, and his question would just be, why? 
that single word why to a minister deadly because the minister had no time to prepare and then had to explain a policy (laughs) they would just torpedo time after time this has been a fascinating conversation. I, um, I, I'm going to be rather rude if I may and sort sort of bring it to an end, but David and I would both like to ask, and I'm sure I don't want to speak for David, but we we've, we've have talked about this. Just your views on the future of the UK right now, because we are at a, a critical point, aren't we, one way or the other, you know, economy, I don't need to go through all the detail, but we, we, do, need, we do need something to change. Things have changed, the landscape's changed dramatically. Are you generally optimistic for, for, for the future? Yeah, I think I am. And um, I mean, we all of us have in, inside of us the optimist and, and the pessimist. Uh, there's been times in the last year where it's been really hard to keep going, and I think that's true of all of us. But perhaps, particularly true of sketch writers, because sketching off a blasted screen has been miserable. But you know, the nation has been depressed. But things are getting better. The vaccines thing has been extraordinary. Yes, but if you think about the future of Scotland, will Scots Scots vote for nationalism now? I, I've got a sense they won't. I, I think they. I think they've I had high, mm. high watermark. I, I think uh, Sturgeon has peaked. Um, she's a pretty impressive performer, I have to say. Um, but just she, she likes making life miserable for people. I think the Scots will look at the. I mean, I don't particularly want the United Kingdom to stay united. I'd be very happy to see the Scots go if they want to, because you can't keep a country together. You can't keep a federal government together like it is unless people want to be part of it. And then am I pessimistic about uh, our relationship with Europe? No, I think Europeans are going to calm down. I think once the willy-waving is over, uh, then I think the um, the EU will realise it's got to do business with us. And I think the Brits are going to be a fairly happy bunch. I hope so, because a lot of the class tensions have gone and uh, our economy can only get better. It's in a terrible state at the moment. And uh, I just, I've got a feeling that, you know, we've come through a dreadful year and uh, it's going to be a bit warmer. Quentin Letts, thank you very much indeed. David, would you like oh, to I would indeed just to say it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely invigorating and really exciting conversation. Not at all, David. Thank, thank you, you. And thank you very much indeed.